This is the Emmanuel Message Podcast. For more information about us, check us out online at kenosha.church or on Facebook or Instagram at kenosha.church. If God is good and if God is all-powerful, why is there evil? Every worldview has to answer that question. In today's message, Andy McGowan teaches us how Jesus provides the solution to the problem. Enjoy the message. This week, we're going to talk about a question that I believe that each and every one of us has thought about. And in fact, if you are a skeptic or if you're somebody who you don't really consider yourself a follower of Christ, maybe this is one of the reasons why you don't. And it's this. It's the problem of evil. The problem of evil can be summed up in this way. If there is such a good and compassionate God, why are there so many problems in this world? Why is there death? Uh, Why is there disease? Why is there pandemics? Why is there destruction? Why do relationships seem to, to break and there's hatred amongst people? How could a good God allow, and I'm sure you can fill that blank in, right? Now, most people won't argue there is, there's evil in the world. There are some philosophers that believe there's no evil, and, well, we're just going to ignore that today, all right? Because the majority would believe, yes, there is evil in the world. There's, there's, there's deep, dark evil in the world. And I, I, I went through my mind, and there's a number of, of evils that I can recount that's happened in people's lives in this world, but there's one that's absolutely unique. It actually happened last November. Allison and I were traveling to Italy uh, to help our mission partner, Stefano Lungo. And uh, Stefano is uh, our, our partner, our manual partner, who is equipping pastors all around Italy, um, doing an amazing job. And so we were there to help him with a conference with a lot of these pastors last November. And during one of the lunches, I met this man by the name of Monday. Can we put it? Let's put his picture up on the screen. There's Monday right there if we can. But Monday uh, was a man that I met at lunch, and I noticed that he had, had scars on his face. Uh, it, it looked like he had been through battle, because he had. You see, Monday, he grew up in Nigeria, but he, he didn't have a job that could support his family, so, so Monday decided, I am going to walk to Europe. He was going to migrate to Europe. He was just going to walk there. And so Monday uh, began to walk from Nigeria, but by the time he went through Libya, and let's pause there for a moment. Libya is a country you don't even want to be in a car over, right? Or a plane, right? It is in civil war. It's been in civil war for about seven years now. Uh, as he was walking through Libya, he was kidnapped and enslaved by ISIS. Uh, he was enslaved. He became a slave and, and, and doing anything they asked him to do, things that were unspeakable. When he began to tell this story, you could tell the tears that were in his eyes. He didn't even know if he's ever going to get out or if he's going to get out alive. He was enslaved with many other men and women that were migrating through Libya and were captured. He was about to lose all hope, and then one night, uh, ISIS was in a battle with a, with a rival uh, army or militia, and as this battle was raging, somehow their, 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 their lock was opened, and, and they were able to get out of, of their cage, and, and they were able to go to the shore, because the city that they were in was right on the Mediterranean. They were able to go to the shore, and they found a boat, and they, they jumped into the boat, and they went 800 miles across the Mediterranean into southern Italy. And then from there, he took transit and walked, and he found himself in northern Italy, and I met him in a Salvation Army in the Italian Alps. And as he's telling me this story, I realized I'm meeting a modern-day person who left slavery, someone who was imprisoned by ISIS, somebody who left Nigeria to go through the danger to find freedom and a better way of life. And in Italy, he found refuge, but he found something even bigger than physical freedom. 
It was in Italy that Stefano taught him uh, the gospel and he placed his faith and trust in, in Jesus. And, and Monday didn't even just place his faith and trust in Jesus. He began to lead other people to Jesus as well. You see, in northern Italy, yes, he was physically freed, but here he found his spiritual freedom through Jesus Christ. But he had to walk through the waters of evil. Evil is real. It's unspeakable. We feel it in different extents and different depths. But I want you to know this this morning. That no matter where we're at when it comes to our physical freedom this morning, spiritual freedom can be found by anybody and everybody who places their faith and trust in Jesus. And there is a promise when you are a follower of Christ and you're willing to follow the ways of Christ, we have a promise that we can hold on to this morning. It's in Romans 8.28. It says this, that we know that all things, church, let's say all, all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Again, sometimes we read this verse and we stop at the first half that all things work out for the good, but we need to understand that the promise is found in the second half who are called according to not my purpose, but his purpose. What the enemy means for evil, God indeed can turn out for good. So let's go back to our question. How could a good God, or why does a good God, fill in the blank, and so on for, for Monday, why would a good God allow him to, to be imprisoned by ISIS in Libya? And you know, this isn't just a hypothetical question this morning. It's not a philosophical question. No, for some of us, for many of us, it's personal. This is a personal question. You've seen relationships break up. Maybe it's been your own. Maybe it's been your marriage. Maybe it was your parents' marriage. Maybe you grew up and you didn't have a father. Maybe you grew up because your father had passed or your mother had passed. Maybe you lost a loved one through tragedy. I've said this before, but every funeral that I preside over, there's that heaviness. Even if they're a follower of Christ and they're in heaven, there's a heaviness knowing that somehow every funeral shouldn't be that way. It wasn't supposed to be that way, right? God didn't create us to, to die, but sin entered the world, and, and as a result, there is death, right? But funerals remind us that it's not supposed to be that way. We have to ask ourselves then, why? Why, God? If you are good, why do you allow this? If you are good, why is there evil in the world? Why don't you intervene? The result of evil is suffering, Pastor Tom gave a masterpiece of a sermon on suffering in our emotion series. Uh, I don't want to retread that this morning. I just want to, we're going to look at a high level of evil. But again, if, if you uh, missed his message on grief and suffering, it's in our emotion series. You can find that at Kenosha.Church. You, you need to visit that message. So today I want to take a high level and look at what evil is and focus on the manifestation of evil through sin. And this is important that we understand and that we're on the same page of what the Bible says is evil and what sin is because we live, again, as we've said the last couple of weeks, we are living in a culture that's redefining everything, whether it's the basic definitions in our dictionary or it's math. Everything is on the table, whether it's backed by science or not, whether it's logical or not, it has to just fit the cultural narrative and it's true for that moment. Maybe not tomorrow, but maybe for now. It's confusing. That's why we need to have a foundation, a biblical foundation. And so we're going to define what evil is. Because we're living in a country. We're living in a world what increasingly the Bible calls evil. The world is saying is good. 
There are problems in this world that we are just kind of shrugging our shoulders to, whether it be the porn industry that's being fueled by the sex trafficking of human beings, whether it's the family that's constantly being minimized, whether through media or actuality in life, whether it's sex that's become casual and outside of marriage, or whether it's drugs that are constantly becoming recreational. What is evil is being called good. The prophet Isaiah prophesied during a time of the nation of Israel, which was divided in two into a northern kingdom and southern kingdom. Uh, he prophesied that indeed uh, th there is a time which was now in the nation of Israel that God was going to judge them because of this very thing. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, he said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. He may be speaking to a divided Israel, but man, does this passage preach today. It's precisely what we're faced with. Evil exists, but it doesn't mean we all have the same definition of what is evil. And it surely doesn't mean that we have the same ways of combating evil. Some people, it's like, by any means necessary, do what makes you happy. The problem of evil, we can agree, is out there, but we don't agree on the solution. Here's the solution. This is our main idea this morning, and then we're going to unpack three questions. Here's the main idea. The problem of evil requires a perfect solution. The problem of evil, which we can all agree exists, requires a perfect solution. By the way, that perfect solution, you can, if you're taking notes, you can, you can modify that and say it's the perfect solution. There's only one. And here's a hint. It's not you. It's not culture. The problem of evil requires a perfect solution. So let's define evil. First question, what is evil? What is evil? Again, this is very important to define. Uh, evil is, there's, there, it can be translated in every language of the world. Evil is prevalent no matter what culture that, that you uh, find yourself in. Uh, evil, uh, again, is, it has, it's really hard to define this in the sense that uh, you know it when you see it, right? Uh, evil is a, a broad word to describe profound wickedness or sorrow. Things that should not be. In our postmodern world, our deconstruction era, again, what has been commonly known as evil is up for debate. And again, this word's being redefined. So I think it's important. What does the Bible say evil is? Uh, what, what is the definition of evil from the Bible? Well, the word evil is used 640 times in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Old Testament, which can translate calamity, mishap, or be used for moral sin. The New Testament, which is written in Greek, uh, there are a few words used for evil, and it's usually applied towards, again, moral evil, the condition of the human heart, and pain from plagues and hardships. Evil is used for calamity that is, that is uh, not personal sin. Evil is also used for personal moral sin, so, uh, or, or the sin of a collective nation. And so it's important to define what evil we're talking about. Is it just a general evil or is it a personal evil? So, so for simplicity's sake, we're going to divide up into three categories and talk about three types of evil you will encounter in your life. The first type of evil is natural evil. And this is an impersonal, external, and temporary evil, which includes disease, disasters, tornadoes, and sickness, to name a few. These are things that happen to us. 
Uh, it, this isn't something that necessarily we, we, we asked for, right? Uh, this is, you know, but some religions will call this karma. If your house gets hit by a tornado, if you, you, got, you, know, if you hate snow, the snow hit you. And like, what did I do, God? Well, nothing. It just snowed. It's the world that we live in, right? About a decade ago, on an early Sunday morning, a tornado ripped through central Illinois. It destroyed entire neighborhoods. And, but the miracle of this story is that most of the people that were in these homes that were destroyed weren't at home. They were at church. And none of the churches were hit by the tornado. They were all spared. And so when they went home, obviously it was devastating because most of these people, although their lives were spared, they lost everything to their name. And so again, we rejoice that, that nobody died, but we, we do mourn with those who mourn. If, if people lose their home and lose their possessions, that's a big deal. And so you wouldn't be in your right mind to celebrate like, oh, yes, calamity, yes, all right. No, you would, that'd be crazy, right? We need to mourn with those who mourn. Someone may ask, though, okay, how could a good God allow that? They were at church worshiping him, and while they were worshiping him, he paid back the favor by wiping out their homes. Why would a good God allow that? I remember, to answer this question, I remember a brilliant answer by John Piper. He was asked a similar question during Hurricane Katrina. I think it was in an NPR interview. And they, they asked him, they said, how could a good God allow Hurricane Katrina? Hurricane Katrina, if you remember, it was huge, right? Uh, many of us went down there to, to help out. It was, it was a huge disaster. And so he was on the hot seat. How could a good God allow that? He responded that we need to weep with those who weep. But we need to remember, it is by the grace of God, the storm wasn't bigger. It's by the grace of God that we live another day. It's by the grace of God uh, that that entire storm didn't wipe our whole country out. And I thought, whoa, that's, I, that's a different direction. But then he quoted Luke chapter 13, 4 through 5. And in this passage, Jesus mentioned uh, an incident of tragedy in Jerusalem when a tower collapsed horrifically and killed 18 people. Luke 13, uh, verse 4 says this, Or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than the others living in Jerusalem that didn't die? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. What Jesus is saying is this. He's dispelling a common myth that was, uh, that had, that was being preached uh, in Jesus' time, and sometimes we even hear this in our time, that if there's calamity, then we did something wrong. And he's saying, no, that's not the case. The case is, is that we, we are living in a fallen world, and when calamity hits us, it reminds us a bigger thing is going to be happening in our life that we will all face, and it's God's final judgment. And what we need to be reminded is that when life flashes before our very eyes, when we survive, we need to realize that someday we won't, or someday Jesus will come back in our lifetime, and we'll have to stand before him, and we will face final judgment. What he's saying here is that we need to make sure that within our physical calamities, our spiritual calamity is taken care of. And it can only be taken care of through Jesus Christ. So natural evil is impersonal, it's external, it's temporary. But because if you're in Christ, in heaven, you need to know this. There'll be no more pain, there'll be no more suffering. There'll be no more pain or destruction. It'll all be swallowed up. And that's what Jesus is reminding us. It's although it was very tragic those 18 people died. There's something even bigger than our temporal life. It's our eternal life. There's natural evil. We face that. Every single one of us will face that. Second form of evil is moral evil. Uh, this is the type of evil that resides inside of us. 
Uh, th- this is where we, uh, this, this is the, the war that goes on in our heart. It's our sin nature. In fact, sin is the most radical form or manifestation of evil. It's the willful manifestation that's metastasized through the human will to rebel against the things of God, uh, to defame God by going our own way. It's a distortion of God's created order. We'll talk more about that in just a bit. But I want to say this. It's been said, though, that humans are born intrinsically good. Have you heard that? You know, there's a song, there's good and bad in all of us, right? I'm sorry. Anyway, you know, there's, I just remember that song from the 80s, right? It's like, you know, there's good, there's bad, we're all good, we're, you know, we're a little bit bad. So have the good outweigh the bad, right? I mean, that's what every world religion says, and somehow that creeps into uh, Christianity. Sometimes that creeps into our, our Bible teaching. But I want you to know that when you look at the pages of Scripture, you will not find anywhere it says that humans are intrinsically good. That's humanist. That's humanism. That's not what you find in the Bible. Why is that? Why are we not intrinsically good? Because the first human beings, they sinned. And because of that, every single one of us are born into this world with a sin nature. And our hearts are then naturally wicked. Some of you are like, I don't know, Andy, if you're telling the truth. I just don't know if I agree with that. Well, let's take a look at Romans chapter 3. Don't, don't worry about me. Let's appeal to see what Paul, what God spoke through Paul. It says this in Romans 3. There is no one righteous. Not even one. Not even you. Not even me. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. How's that for like a life verse, right? Put that in the refrigerator, right? I'm so encouraged today. You know, we're all wicked, right? No, we don't like to hear this. We like to think of ourselves better than what we really are, right? So this may come to a surprise to some of us today. It may come as a surprise to you that our human hearts are not bent towards the goodness of God. They're not in the natural. Now, when you place your faith and trust in Jesus, you do receive the Holy Spirit. And it flips the whole equation upside down, right? The Holy Spirit, when you're in tune with the Spirit, when, you're, when you are walking in the Spirit, right? It pushes you towards the things of God. But in the natural, we aren't after the things of God. We're after ourselves. But when we are in the spirit, we begin to think God's thoughts. We can begin to be sensitive to the prophetic voice of God. And it's why I spent an entire message last week that the word of God, the revelation of God, we need to be in it if we're going to know the will of God. For many of us, we're not in the word of God. We're not understanding it. We're not applying it. And so therefore, by default, do you think that we're leaning into the things of God? No, you're sprinkling the things of God maybe in your life but you're not truly living it. You're, you're living flesh plus God, right? Well, we, we, we just want to be spirit-led be people, right? That's what God is calling us to be is spirit-led, not in the flesh, in the culture with a little bit of the spirit. Sin metastasizes itself through our willful disobedience, so there's moral evil. Third way evil manifests is supernatural evil, and this is a demonic evil. Demonic evil can be behind or influence natural evil or moral evil. Sometimes it's not, but sometimes it does. We know that uh, this supernatural evil is something that we tangle with. Uh, Paul uh, told the Ephesians church in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12, he said, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. You need to remember this, is that when you're in that battle, with someone. Yes, you're in that battle with somebody, but you need to know what's behind it. 
It is not flesh and blood, this battle that we're in. We're in a battle that is supernaturally evil. We're in a battle that, that, our, that we have been given the spirit of God to resist the supernatural demonic forces. Now we know these spiritual forces, these demonic forces are described in the Bible as Satan and his legion of demons, which were at one point angels who rebelled against God. In heaven, Satan, when he was Lucifer, he wanted the glory of God, and the glory of God's only reserved for God, but he wanted it for himself, and as a result, God cast him out from heaven, along with one-third of the angels that followed him. As a result, Satan has now been wrecking havoc in all of human history, wanting, you nothing, wanting to have you do nothing in the things of God. Well, he wants you to be sidetracked in the things of God. He wants to distort and overthrow the purposes of God, even though he's not going to overthrow them. But the thing is, is that he can make you sidetracked. He can get you shipwrecked, right? Satan and his legion of demons, also referred to as the enemy, have also a temporary rule in the world systems. When you're looking at the world and you're like, why is this world corrupt? The Bible's very clear. He's the power of the prince of the air. Is what the Bible says. It means that he is running havoc even in the world systems. Satan is constantly opposed to the advancing of the gospel. Satan absolutely hates it when people place their faith and trust in Jesus here at Emmanuel. Satan absolutely hates it when you invite somebody here to Emmanuel. Satan absolutely hates it when, when strongholds are broken and, and people respond in prayer here at Emmanuel. Satan absolutely hates it when you're in his word. Satan absolutely hates it when you get on, his knee, when you get on your knees and you're praying to God. Satan absolutely hates it when you're seeking the things of the Spirit. Satan absolutely hates it when you are after the things of God. What he wants you to do is he wants you to be ineffective. He wants you to be addicted to vices. He wants you to follow the ways of the world and name that God. But here's the deal. No matter his intentions, we don't need to walk out of here this morning or you don't have to worry in your living room this morning about the enemy. Oh no, what's he going to do? Oh no, the enemy's around her. Oh no, right? No, it's not like that at all. You don't need to be worried if you're in Christ, if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus, you don't need to worry about the enemy. You need to be aware of him. You need to be aware of his intent. Of when you begin to rely on your flesh, on your own spirit and not the Holy Spirit, you need to understand you are becoming a sitting duck and saying, okay, come and tempt me. Okay, uh, come, you, you, you can come and mess my life up right now, enemy, right? That's what you're saying. That's why we need to be in the word of God. That's why we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. When we have the Holy Spirit, we can claim victory and live in victory. and We can overcome the attacks of the enemy. So evil's real. And it manifests itself in different ways. Evil is wickedness manifested through sin, the natural, and demonically supernatural. So the problem of evil requires a perfect solution. This leads us to another question. Now that we've defined evil, why does a good God allow evil? Okay, we know evil's there. We know what it looks like. We know the, the, the categories of it. Why does a good God allow evil? And this has stumped a lot of people. This has stumped theologians. This has stumped pastors. This has stumped me. This has stumped you, right? There's a lot of opinions on this. There's, there's, a, whole, uh, there's a whole way of theology. There's a, a sector of theology that, that studies just this sector of the problem of evil. Well, philosopher and skeptic David Hume, he, he does not believe or did not believe in Christ because of the problem of evil. And this is why. He had, he had three type of ideas that for him, he just could not wrap his head, head around a, a good God because there's evil. So here's objection number one. David Hume said this. 
If there's a good God and there's evil, is he willing to prevent evil but not able to? So this is option number one. The reason why he says there's no such thing as God because there's evil, he said, well, if there is a God, is he willing to prevent evil but not able to? What he's saying is, does God have a good intention but he's not all-powerful? Well, we, we know through Scripture and we, we know through the experience of the Holy Spirit, God is all-powerful. Uh, he's the most powerful uh, being in all of the universe. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's never been created. He's always been. He is all-powerful. He could say the word and creation was spoke. Yet, David Hume said, one of the options is, he's okay, if he exists, then uh, he's willing, but he's not all-powerful. We have to reject that. He is all-powerful. His second objection was this. He said, uh, he's able, but he's not willing. Okay, if he is all-powerful, there's still evil, so he must not be willing, which makes him a tyrant. Well, we know he's not a tyrant. We know he's good. Uh, he's a good, good father. That, that he's so, his love is so deep, we can't even measure it. His third objection is, well, he's both able and willing, but there's still evil, so therefore he doesn't believe. Humans basically existing the... Uh, questioning the existence of God, the power of God, and the goodness of God. And his objective proof is observable evil. There have been a number of ways that theologians have tried to respond to skeptics like David Hume. <laughs> There's a number of ways. I'm going to reduce it down to three just for time's sake. The first way that I've seen a lot of followers of Christ, and I think we've all probably used this one, is just dismissing the problem altogether. We just dismiss it. Let's not talk about that. Well, I have a problem with evil, like this happened in my life. I lost a loved one, and how could there be a good God? Well, you know what? Uh, God's just all powerful in heaven, and he'll tell us someday in heaven, right? Well, that's a true answer, but it's not really thinking about it. So we can dismiss it. Deuteronomy 29, 29, we'll quote this. The secret things belong to the Lord. It's true that there are many things in Scripture we will not understand until we get to heaven. However, we do not want to use this as our card of every time we don't know something or every time something's hard in the Bible, instead of studying it, we just say, oh, the secret things are to the Lord. But I want to know, the secret things are to the Lord, right? It's, it's kind of like, let's, let's flip the discussion. When you're online and you're trying to, you know, go through something, a, a cultural topic or a topic that's kind of heated, whether online or in person, and someone's just like, you know what, you're just mansplaining me. And you know what, you're just not on the right side of history. Uh, you, you know what, like, uh, you, you just, you're just a bigot. Uh, you know what, okay, boomer, Right? People use those all the time, like, wait, are we going to have a discussion or not? No, because you're a boomer, right? Okay, I'm not a boomer. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an old millennial, all right? Or Gen X. I don't even know what I am. I'm a zennial. I, I, I don't know. No, I'm not a zennial. I, I don't know what I am. 1981. We're, we're forgotten, all right? So, but we hate that. We hate when somebody shuts us down because we realize what we say isn't of value to somebody. And however, we can do the same thing when we say, oh, the secret things are the Lord. We should engage with it. We should listen to those who are, are, are verbalizing skepticism because maybe they're having questions that indeed they're being open to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So some of us, we dismiss it. Let's not do that. Let's listen. And again, we, want, we might not ever find out the answer till we get to heaven on some of the harder things, but it doesn't mean we can't study it and dive deep into that. 
Second approach to explain away the evil of this world, the problem of evil, is trying to make God more palatable to society. Another way of putting that is making improvements for God, right? Again, this is popular in the deconstruction progressive Christianity. And again, when I say progressive Christianity, I don't mean political, all right? Uh, what I mean by progressive Christianity is they, this is the sect of Christianity. They feel that progressing into further truth or maybe away from the Bible makes things more loving and palatable for society. They often progress uh, into a new truth and often in embracing liberal social issues as well. As we talked about last week, this is uh, not thinking that is biblical thinking. We will be driven by biblical thinking. But this approach views the Bible as a suggestion instead of authority, right? Uh, we're, we're, they, they honor it because it's a sacred old text, but not authoritative. And so when someone views the Bible that way and they come to the problem of evil, what they can do now is they can say, you know what, we're going to make some improvements for God, all right? Like, uh, we, we, some of these scriptures are just too hard. We're just going to ignore that or we're going to reinterpret it. So when it comes to the problem of evil, the progressives will try to rescue God from the Bible. Often they'll make God limited in power. Well, you know, God's just not all powerful. Or maybe they'll make him limited in knowledge. You know, God just doesn't know those things. I've heard this. I've heard this from theologians that are running seminaries. Uh, it's, it's frightening. Uh, they'll say, well, you know, they're just, you know, God just kind of created us. And then he just kind of took a step back and he's like, what's going to happen Oh, I don't know what's going to happen today. Oh, it snowed out in Kenosha. I didn't know that was going to happen, right? And this is, this is called like an open theology. It's, it's not a biblical theology. But again, people use this as a way to improve on God to help problems such as the problem of evil. It must be rejected. I often mention our president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson. Uh, he had what was called the Jeffersonian Bible. He would cut out areas of the Bible he did not like. He believed in a deist God, a God that was, a, God that was far off and didn't know what was going to happen. Just kind of wound it up and just kind of let it go. We have a God that's deeply personal, a God that's all-powerful, a God that is not surprised by anything. So we must reject that second view. A few years ago, I was talking to someone who grew up in the church, and they were explaining an issue they no longer agreed with in the Bible, and in the conversation, they claimed the Bible's translation on certain Greek words were wrong. Even though the last 2,000 years of scholarship would have not understood that Greek word the particular way they were saying. And even the, the Greek speakers of the day wouldn't have understood the Greek word that way. But somehow we're living in an era that we take things and we give it a new 2021 understanding. And that becomes authoritative. That has to be rejected. We are not this, the smartest people that's ever lived. Right, And if we're going to live that way, know this, that in 30, 60, 90 years, someone's going to cancel you. Can you believe what they thought in 2021? Right. So let's, be, let's, let's not get prideful in thinking that we're the most enlightened. We are not. All right? uh, we are people that need to, be, uh, need to be students of the word of God, led by the word of God. We cannot just redefine something just because, well, pop culture, the majority of the people say we can God does not need a rescue. So that leads us to the third understanding of how do we deal with the objection of how could there be a good God and the problem of evil. And this is one that I would say we can embrace. And it's tension. It's God's sovereignty, our responsibility. God's sovereignty, our responsibility. The Bible describes our creator God who has no beginning and end. He's good. He's all-powerful. There's no one like him, and he's the one true God. If you worship any other God, or, or if you make a modification of the one true God, it is a false God. He is good. 
And yet, there's the presence of evil that occurred after the fall. So let's take a look at this a little bit further. Let's put some Bible on this. Let's go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. We'll be in Genesis if you want to flip to your physical Bibles here. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Let's see how a good creation collided with evil. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created everything in the universe, land, sea, the animals. But his crown jewel of creation were humans. Humanity, men and women, were the only part of creation that were created in the image of God. To reflect his goodness. We see this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. We were created to reflect the goodness of God. He created humanity not because he was lacking. Sometimes people believe that if he didn't create us, then God would be lacking in something. He was lacking in nothing. He does not need us. His creating of humanity, the earth, everything else, it didn't add to him. He did it as an expression of his love so that we can express our love to him, that we can enjoy him. You see... It is a joy that we can know God. And it's for our good that we can know God. And out of his goodness and love, he's sharing his goodness with us. When God was finishing his creative work, we are told in Genesis 1.31, he says, God saw all that he made, and it was very good indeed. Creation was good. It didn't need an upgrade. It didn't need our suggestions. It was good. So what happened? How did evil come in? Well, God had one condition for the first human, first human beings, Adam and Eve. He said, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of it. You can do anything in this, in this garden. You can have all the other trees in this garden. Just don't eat from that tree, that one tree. Don't eat it. What happens? Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent, that serpent is Satan. Satan at this point has fallen with one-third of the angels. So what is he doing? He's trying, to, he's trying to overthrow the purposes of God. So he shows up in the third chapter of Genesis. Now the serpent was more cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Notice Satan's tactic. He's questioning God's creative purposes. He is questioning God's word. And he's using what I call the hiss of Satan. We see this in culture all the time. Does the Bible really say that? Did God really say that? Did God really mean that? Did, did God, are you sure? Oh, that doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem like the God I know. That doesn't seem like the Jesus I know. Are you sure? Oh, that can't be right. The enemy questioned what God had clearly said. Did God really say that to you? Don't get drunk. Did God really say you have to be faithful? That you can't sleep around? Did God really say it's wrong to hate someone? I mean, do you know what they really did to you? Did God really say? You see, Satan creates doubts. And he doesn't create doubts. Last week we talked about how doubts are actually 
they happen to all of us, and it's a good thing so we can investigate the truth. But Satan doesn't create a doubt where we want to investigate truth. No, Satan wants to create doubt to destroy us, for us to deconstruct the truth into unbelief. And that's exactly what Adam and Eve did. They disbelieved God. They ate from the fruit, and sin entered their hearts, and sin reverberated throughout the cosmos, and sin is felt today in a real way by every single one of us because of this first sin. Sin entered the world. The world was good, but it entered the world through human disobedience. God created the world to be good, but sin entered it. But here's what needs to be understood this morning. Evil was not created by God, but rather as Augustine articulated, that evil is actually the absence of good. It's cold outside today, right? There's no such thing as cold air. Did you know that? Here's some Andy McGowan's meteorology talk, all right? There's no such thing as cold air. Actually, it's hot air that with the atoms have just slowed down, right? It's cold weather, cold temperatures is actually just the lack of heat. I want you to know this. Evil is the lack of good. So how does a good God allow for this evil to stand? Well, we know Hume, the philosopher Hume, had objections, but I want to share with somebody that actually the reality of evil actually pushed them to God. The C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis questioned the existence of God because of suffering. He was an atheist because of it. The presence of evil became more of a problem in his life than the problem of a good God. In fact, the presence of evil actually began to push him and cause him to doubt that there wasn't a God. It began to open his eyes to the possibility of God. He realized, okay, I know there's evil. I know there's supposed to be a good God. I've rejected a good God because I've seen the evil, but evil is so bad, I want a rescue. And this is what he said. I'll quote him. He said, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust, but how had I got this idea of just or unjust? He began to think like, wait, where am I getting this idea of what just is? Where am I getting the idea of, of justice a man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? And at that point, C.S. Lewis realized there must be a good God despite the evil that's in the world and a good God that's going to rescue us from this fallen world. You see, God can eradicate evil right now, but you know what that's called? That's called the second coming. When Jesus Christ comes back, all of evil will be eradicated. Why does he pause? Why does he wait? He waits because of mercy and grace. You see, if you were to come back right now and there's a person that's not in the Lord at that moment, it's too late. So when God waits, it's in his love and it's in his mercy that people can be drawn to him and receive forgiveness through him. God is fully in control. And we have the responsibility as he's fully in control to resist evil and obey him. It's a tension. It's a tension. And evil, as C.S. Lewis stated, should push us to our Savior. So the problem of evil requires a perfect solution. That solution is Jesus. Now, as we wait, one final question, and I hear this in the church, I hear this outside the church. If Jesus is the rescue, and if you're rescued, well, why does it really matter how we live? Why does his holiness matter? The opposite of evil is holiness, right? Holiness is perfection. It's being set apart for the things of God. When God tells us to be holy, right? Uh, we can't be holy because we're imperfect, but he's setting the standard. So why does holiness matter? 
matters because it sets the pace for the rest of our life and how we ought to live. You see, God is holy. That means there's no sin. There's no unrighteousness. Uh, God is perfect. And we're fallen. We're not perfect. But his standard remains. You see, the Bible makes clear Romans 3.23. We have all sinned and we have fallen short of God's glory. We have fallen short of his standard. We've all sinned. What, what, what means this? Is we live in a world where it's one giant charade of trying to prove ourselves. Whether it's in person, online, at work, in relationships, whatever. We're trying to prove ourselves and how good we are. And right now it's manifesting itself very clearly through what I call the virtue signal, right? I want to, I want to make sure I'm on the right side of history. I want to make sure I'm saying the right buzzwords. I want to make sure I'm liked. But the Bible makes clear that we don't have to prove ourselves. Because we can't. We can't prove our oneself because we we're not good in ourselves. The only way that we can become good is if the righteousness of Christ is placed on us. You see, the problem of evil requires that perfect solution. And that solution is not us. It's not our virtue signal. It's, it's not being on the right side of history. It's the Lord God Almighty. His holiness matters because without God, we are lost. Romans 12.1 says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in the view of the mercies of God... I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true act of worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, what is pleasing, the perfect will of God. Our life, the air in our lungs, every thought that we have, every desire that we have, even the number of days that we have or we have left in our life, they are his. They're his, unknown to us. And how we live and choose to live will declare what we think of our Lord God Almighty. This is why holiness matters. Uh, when we strive after the holiness of God, it is a declaration of our love for the Lord. It's our declaration that he is worth it all. It's not a declaration that we have to prove our perfection. That's not what it is all about. That's why Jesus came, so that we say, we, we are gonna declare our perfection. We're gonna run after his perfection. And as we do that, we will no longer conform to the ways of this age. And our minds will be renewed to his ways. Church, this is so important, striving after the holiness of God because we are at a watershed moment as a Western church. We're at a watershed moment. I believe in the next few years, we're gonna look back in the history books and we're gonna realize that there were churches that decided to go after culture and they wanted to be more relevant with culture and there were churches that wanted to be pleasing to God and they hoped to be influential in the gospel of Jesus Christ to restore through the only way that we can have a restoration and that's through Christ. You can be liked or you can have Christ and hopefully you can influence and love people whether you're liked or not. Now again, I'm not telling anybody here to just be flagrant or to, to you know, be jerky about Christ, right? Uh, we're, that's No, we're to love people. We're to love even our enemies, right? That doesn't mean that we go around and we get all hot-headed and I'm right, I'm gonna tell you about Jesus. No, that's, that's a bad example. Sometimes people say, well, you know, I, I, we're not pleasing people, so whatever, right? No, that's not an excuse to do whatever you wanna do. We need to please Jesus. We need to love people, but this is a watershed moment. Are we gonna follow Christ above everything else? So I stated a few weeks ago, or stated a few, uh, just a few minutes ago, we are living in the age the prophet Isaiah proclaimed that what is evil is being proclaimed is good and what is good is actually evil. And this is trickling down into our schools, our colleges, even some Bible-believing churches. 
You see, we go wrong when we start with a worldview of how we can fit in instead of the worldview of what does God say. His holiness needs to be our guide. But if you're casual with Christ, you will be casual to sin and ultimately you'll be casual to evil. This is painfully illustrated in the nation of Israel. Want to know why holiness matters? Check this out. Before the fall of ancient Israel, they were divided into two, they went into a civil war, they divided into two sections, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. The northern kingdom fell first and the southern kingdom was going to fall as well because they had fallen into idolatry and living out the culture of the godless nations around them. Judah fell into gross, awful sin for 75 years. A 75-year period that they lost every copy of the word of God and the prophets stopped talking. And in this period, it became so wicked. Instead of going to the temple to worship God, they erected, uh, they, they, they built uh, statues of, of statues I don't even want to get into, basically of the male genitalia. The, the, the sexual practices of, of the day were, uh, were, were, were deviant and they, they did as their eyes pleased and whatever they wanted to do. In fact, the very temple of God was turned into a place where you can worship the foreign deities and it involved going to male prostitutes. It was depraved. But the worst thing was parents would often take their firstborn children typically as infants, and would sacrifice their children, killing them on altars to the God of Moloch, as the God of surrounding nations, and their hope was that they would fit in, their hope was that they'd be seen as devout, their hope was that they would be blessed in their life. Sacrificing their firstborn, we'd be like, oh, that's barbaric. It's not far off what's going on today. God ended the prophetic silence with the prophet of Jeremiah, and this is what he said in Jeremiah Chapter one, verse four, he said, the word of the Lord came to me. And this is what the Lord said. I chose you before I formed you in the womb. Stop right there for a second. If culture was all about depraved sex, if it was turning the temple into a a place of prostitutes, if people were literally slaughtering their children, there was not a sanctity of life. There was not an ethic of, of morality that was found from the Bible. It's do what you please. Do whatever you want to do. Do what the culture says is right. And God is saying, Jeremiah, I'm going to speak through you. And your call happened in the womb. Why? Because I fearfully and wonderfully made you. I wove you together. What those people are doing with their children is detestable. And you are going to be the messenger, Jeremiah 116. I will pronounce my judgments against them for all the evil they did when they abandoned me to burn incense to other gods and to worship the works of their own hands. You see, what God is saying to Jeremiah, what he's saying to us this morning, is that how we live matters. How we respond to the culture matters. We need to be influencers in the culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But may we never try to make ourselves more palatable because when we do, we will soften evil. We will soften sin and we will begin to live in practices that are so detestable before the Lord. Yet we will say, but God, we're after you. But God, we claim your name. But God, we worship you. And you'll say, but why? Why have you left me? You mean this in pretense, but not your full heart. God is showing this to us this morning to take heed. It may seem like evil is out of control, 
But know this, evil's on a leash. Our God is in control. And if you're living a life, you know that's far from God this morning, it's by his mercy. It's by his mercy that even hearing this message that you can turn to him again. That you can place your faith and trust in him. Because of his grace, we can be right with him and strive to live in his truth and shun what he calls evil. The problem of evil requires a perfect solution. So here's our takeaway. And we're going to pray and we're going to worship. Our response to evil is this. For some of us, it's repentance. Remember, calamities or things that have happened to you, that's, that's not because of sin. I'm talking about the repentance when it comes to moral failure, moral failure of our hearts. When we've chosen the idols of this culture, we've chosen to go our own way, when we've let certain sins harbor in our hearts, you can make it whatever excuse you want for it. But it's sin. And we need to repent. We need to, repentance starts with, with a declaration of your mouth. But the full fruit of repentance is actually walking that way in your life. So name it to the Lord this morning. Where do you need to turn? Secondly, some of you need healing. Some of you have been victims of evil, whether it be natural calamity, maybe it's someone has sinned against you. And you just need God to meet with you this morning to heal you in that area, to heal your heart, to begin to, 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 begin to walk in steps of restoration. And finally, some of you need encouragement. Some of you just need encouragement because this, this fallen world has just been so pressing on you during this year. You just need encouragement. So again, repentance, healing, and I believe encouragement. By the way, if you need any of those online, just hit the prayer box if you're in church online or send us a message on Facebook if you're watching us there. But let's just go before the Lord. Let's go before the Lord and let's have him meet with us. So Father, may we never call what is evil good. May we never call what's good evil. God, I pray that we call what is good, good, and what is evil, evil. And God, I pray that we would run after you, follow after you, no matter the cost, no matter what equity it's going to burn in our life. But God, I pray that we do this in a spirit of love and a spirit of restoration in our community and a spirit that, that will not be broken because of rejection of a certain idea or full rejection because we're followers of Christ. Lord, I pray that the love of the Lord and the power of the Spirit would come out, out, out of us. God, I pray for the people in our lives, whether they be our co-workers or whether they be our neighbors or people that we interact with, that God, I pray that we would be agents of reconciliation through the cross of Jesus Christ. So God, I pray for anybody this morning that needs to get right with you. I think specifically the person that has never made right with you, that they've never made Jesus personal. And I want to talk to you, if you've never made Jesus personal in your life, if you've never personally asked him for forgiveness of your sins, if you've never asked him to be your savior of your life, today's your day. It doesn't matter what you've done in your past or what you're going to do in the present. All you have to do is say, Jesus, I need you to step in my life. You are the only solution. You're the only solution. This is how you receive him. You see, God made you to have a relationship with him. But our sin, remember sin is that manifestation of evil, that moral evil in our hearts that has separated us from a holy God. God could have left it that way. We could have been separated from him for forever. But God, being full of mercy and love, came to this earth to die on the cross. And when he died on the cross, he took all of our sins, all of our moral wrong, 
and he took it all in that one moment on the cross. When Jesus died, he was buried, but he was only buried for three days because he's a perfect sacrifice. He paid for our sins. He rose from the dead. And this is how we receive this wonderful gift. Saying, Jesus, I need you. I place my full faith and trust in you alone. I believe that you died on the cross. I believe that you rose from the dead. I place my full faith and trust in you now. Just tell him that. Receive his free gift. Father, I just pray for those that are saying yes to you this morning. They're like, you know what? I want to make this personal. I want to place my faith and trust in Jesus alone. I just want to pray for those this morning that they would make that decision and they would begin to follow you in every area of their life. As we continue to pray, I want to pray for those that are followers of Christ, but you've let sin and dwell in your heart and this is your morning to repent. This is your morning to repentance is a 180. to turn away from those. Quit mute, making excuses. I know you're like, oh, this is tough. I know it's hard. For some of you, it's almost an addiction, but there is a way, the way through Jesus Christ to break those strongholds. Just name it, cry out to God. I've cried out to God hundreds of times. Cry out to him again. This is the moment that he wants to meet with you. For some of you, you need healing because someone has sinned so drastically against you and God wants to provide that healing that although it might not take away what you experienced, God wants you to feel his love and assurance God, I just pray for those that need healing and encouragement. Pray for that specific person that they are just so done with this season and they, have, they, have, they haven't been in your word and they just see, feel so distant. God, I just pray they would feel your love this morning. They would, you, would draw them to, you would draw them to you. And God, I just pray that as response to this message today, we would declare you Lord, master, leader of our life, May we never, God, I repent even as a, us collectively of whenever we have said that, God, we know better or we've tried to tell you what to do. God, tell us what to do and give us a willing heart to follow. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Again, if you'd like more information about Emmanuel Kenosha Church, then check us out online at kenosha.church. Also, we'd love it if you'd connect with us on Facebook or Instagram both at kenosha.church. Lastly, if you enjoyed this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to us on iTunes at Emmanuel Kenosha. That way you never have to miss an episode. At Emmanuel, we are not perfect people, but we are people being made new through Jesus. Thanks for listening to this week's episode, and we'll see you next time on the Emmanuel Message Podcast.